0: Here's the story of a very old decree, forced on King John as he made off with the revenue of us barons and the aristocracy. He took our land
1: and for a laugh held our sons hostage to Magna Carta. Magna Carta. Told King John he's gotta be. He's
0: this is Lee Habib, and this is How American Stories, and you're listening to this interesting music about, of all things, the Magna Carta. And the idea of setting history to music, well, it worked out pretty well for the composer of Hamilton, setting Ron Chernow's remarkable biography into one of the greatest hit plays of all time. And that's what we're about to dive into, not Hamilton, the Magna Carta, during our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on what the rule of law is, what happens when it's absent and present in human life, and how it silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of this British document that paved the way for what we now know and love as the United States of America.
1: Magna Carta was negotiated in the great meadow of Runnymede. And it's still a very atmospheric place today. The great meadow still stretches outside the Thames.
2: We're listening to the preeminent scholar on Magna Carta, British historian David Carpenter, who has an appropriately named book... Magna Carta. It's very close to
1: Heathrow Airport, and the great aeroplanes which take off from Heathrow come up and they fly over Runnymede, and they often then turn and and fly all the way down its length and disappear into distance. And it's rather symbolic in a way, because it's to say they're taking Magna Carta with them through the world. And, of course, that is true. The, The Charter has become one of the most, perhaps the most famous document in world constitutional history.
2: Okay, but what... Is it this thing that's in the dead language of Latin? This thing that politicians like Britain's former Prime Minister David Cameron debated with his opponents? Harriet Harman.
0: Last month,
1: the Prime Minister celebrated the bank Carta. If he accepts that in a democracy there needs to be an effective check on executive power. Will he abandon his plans to water down the Human Rights Act? Yeah. The point she makes about the Magna Carta, uh, I would say, uh, demonstrates that there were human rights before the Human
2: Rights Act. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this thing that's even allowed such a raucous debate as the one you just heard to happen every single week during the legendary question time in Britain's Parliament. And this thing, that the same David Cameron did not know what it meant in English, his country's language, when of all people, David Letterman asked him. And the literal translation is was what? You have magna... M- I, I, again, you're
1: testing me. No. Um. <laughs> Boy, it'd be good Quite if you me. knew this. Yeah, it would be. <laughs>
2: This thing that the rapper Jay-Z named one of his albums after, and we have no clue why. People who have time to debate such things in online forums say that they think it's because Magna means greater, and Carta sounds close to Jay-Z's actual last name, Carter. Meaning that Jay-Z thinks of himself as great, which is as close as you can get to, the opposite of the spirit of Magna Carta.
0: Holy grail.
2: Now, you might be saying to yourself, Alex, that was a cutesy little detour that you just brought us through, but you still haven't answered, what is Magna Carta? Well, I'm not ready to answer yet, but David Carpenter is with a little prehistory. Going way, way back to the reign of King John, all the way back to the 13th century.
1: 1214, there was a great deal of resentment in England about the whole government of King John. His manipulation of justice, denial of justice, his seizure of people's property without due legal process. Because, John, if you not against him, would simply send in the heavies. He would send in his household knights to seize your property, possibly even to imprison you. There was also loathing of John personally, loathing of John, and that was because he was a murderer, murdering some of his greatest opponents. He murdered his nephew Arthur, who was a rival for the throne, and in the most notorious all, he murdered the greatest noble woman of the age, Matilda de Breo, starved her to death in the vaults of Corfe Castle, along with her eldest
2: son. And that wasn't John's only problem. His great quarrel with the
1: church, and that was because in 1204, 1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and John thought he had a wonderful successor, which was a loyal agent, the Bishop of Norwich. But the monks of Canterbury elected somebody else, the Pope intervened, and the Pope insisted that instead of John's candidate, the Archbishop of Canterbury should be Stephen Langton. And Now, Stephen Langton was actually an Englishman, but he was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a great academic. And John just thought, well, how can I accept as archbishop someone i don't know i mean university academics didn't swim into john's orbit very often and So i think in some ways he said i don't know him but also he's been a professor he's practiced teaching at the great capital of my great enemy paris and so john refused to have him and that led into a long quarrel with the pope pope in the third in the end england was placed under an interdict john was excommunicated what it meant was that mass couldn't be celebrated, people couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, churches were closed. I think it did have a profound effect on the, on the psyche of people in England, depressing effects. And, of course, obviously it's John who's, in a sense, to blame for it. And the, the accounts of it, they are horrific. They, they do indicate a, a very profound trauma caused by the instinct. On the other hand, it's perfectly true, government went on. It didn't stop John exacting large sums of money from his subjects. And in some ways, John almost welcomed the interdict because it meant he could make even more money from the church. He simply seized church property. Uh, And and so in that sense, John came from it. I, I suppose I ought to say, well, what about John personally? Well, I mean, he had a reputation for impiety, for impiety. I mean, John laughed during Mass. He, the records of his own government show him constantly having to give alms to the poor because he'd broken various fast days because he'd eaten meat on Friday or gone hunting on a saint's day or gone hawking when there were some restrictions on those kinds of activities. So John was notoriously impious.
2: And yet there was still more.
1: And Magna Carta, if it's about one thing, it's about money. Money. Now, already by the time John came to the throne, there was very great resentment at the high levels of taxation in England. Well... John tripled his revenues, tripled them. And that was because in 1204 he lost a large part of the continental empire. And so he then spent 10 furious years in England rebuilding his treasure, getting as much money as he could to try and win that empire back. Everyone suffered from these financial exactions the church, the barons, uh, knights, free tenants, all the way down to the peasantry. And in 1214 he launched that campaign on the continent. It was a disaster. His allies were decisively defeated at a great battle in Flanders, the Battle of Bouvines. John's campaign in the south of France ran into the ground and got nowhere. So when he comes back to England in the autumn of 1214, his treasure is spent, his prestige is in tatters. And that's when his baronial enemies went for him. They took a great oath that they would bind themselves together and not make peace with the king until he gave the concessions they wanted. And they were already thinking in terms of a great charter which would restrict his operations and solve all these grievances in terms of detail. That was what was so new, is that the barons put together, uh, helped by churchmen, a very, very detailed program which restricts the king.
2: And in the end... John gives way. Gives way to meeting at Runnymede and considering their demands.
1: Why does he give way in 1215? Well, I've said his situation was parlous when he got back from his campaign in France in the autumn of 1214. But it wasn't actually completely desperate at that stage. He still had control of all his castles in England. He still had sufficient money to hire mercenary soldiers. And so in the course of 1215, first months of 1215, there's really a standoff between John and his opponents. Neither side want quite to commit themselves to outright war. And then something happens in May 1215, and um, which destroyed John's position. And that was the fall of London. The barons, by a clever ruse, got hold of London. And that meant John knew he could not win the war, because London's the great capital of the country. Its wealth is now in baronial hands. It's far too large to besiege. John knew there was no easy way to win the war. And so what he thought was, right, that so these wretched people are demanding this charter, are granted to them. Um, I don't think it'll ever be enforced, but nonetheless, I'll make the concessions they want, and probably that will uh, mean they'll all go home uh, and there'll be peace, and then possibly, I hope, things will go on much as before.
0: And when we come back, more on the story of Magna Carta, first salvo in our rule of law series. More after these messages. This is our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex and the story of Magna Carta.
2: On June 10th, 1215, King John and the Barons meet at Runnymede, and just imagine this epic meeting of minds and of power, a king for the first time in human history, significantly giving into the demands of people who are not
1: We do know quite a bit about the scene at Runnymede. And it's wonderfully described by Ralph of Coggeshall, abbot of the Cistercian Abbey in Essex. And he describes the great tents and pavilions stretched out across Runnymede, the great, great pavilions of the king. And they towered above the smaller tents of the, of the great barons. So you can imagine that great meadow just full of people. Now, during all that time, between 10th and 19th of June, which is when they were all encamped at Runnymede, we know that John was actually living at Windsor Castle. And I think that's because he felt unsafe in Runnymede. You know, if you spend the night there surrounded by these hordes of your enemy barons and knights, you might be unsafe. So conversely, of course, the barons weren't prepared to come to Windsor because there they would have been in the king's power.
2: All of them feeling safe, as safe as one can feel, on neutral ground amongst the enemy, came up with the Magna Carta
1: charter was conceded on June the 15th. That's the day John gave it. The charter ends given by our hand in the meadow of Runnymede on the 15th of June in the 17th year of our reign.
2: But when John was finished, that didn't mean that it was finished.
1: And there were another four days before the assembled barons actually accepted the the peace that the charter had brought
2: a process that by itself was a victory for humankind that not a king single-handedly but that we together decide how we want our society to be run concessions that the barons couldn't have possibly known would become one of the greatest in history even called by some the birth certificate of the rule of law the Guarantee that publicly known and stable law will rule the day, allowing all of us to go about our days, living our lives, building our dreams, our families, our careers without fear. As long as we respect the law, too. As opposed to the thousands of years before then of rule by whim the whim of the dictator but these barons did know that something big enough did happen at least for their own lives that they celebrated with their king john then
1: did celebrate with a great feast probably that was at windsor castle and so just for a moment it looked as though there was going to be a genuine reconciliation
2: But that would change. Before we get there though, we continue the celebration of the historic concessions that these barons did achieve in writing. The very first chapter of Magna Carta
1: protects the liberties of the church and restricts the ability of the king to place his own people into bishoprics. And and so, in the end, John submitted...
2: Submitted to a civil institution ruling itself. Then, there were the wins on the hated taxes like this strangely named one...
1: There was a tax called scutage, and this meant that if the king didn't want the military service of a great baron, he could demand a money payment itself, scutage, and that's because the Latin scutagium means a shield, a shield, and so scutage has been taken relatively rarely by kings before 1199. John, though, takes two or three times more scutages than ever before, and that is then restricted in Magna Carta because Magna Carta's chapters 12 and 14 state that no scutage in future is to be taken without the consent of the kingdom, without in effect, although he doesn't use the the word, the the consent of Parliament.
2: The consent of those who make the laws and the laws themselves again bye-bye to the whims of the king and it also curtailed his authority over widows (laughs) oh i'm not joking it really says here widows to
1: preserve widows from being forced by the king into remarriage Now, before 1215, this was a very major source of patronage and revenue, the king's ability to marry off widows to his henchmen as reward, or alternatively, which happened a great deal, he would charge widows large sums of money for permission not to be forced into marriage. Now, what Magna Carta says is that widows are not to be forced to be remarried any longer. The charter has been called a major step in the emancipation
2: of women. And the rule of their own lives. Then, there's the most famous line of the Magna Carta.
1: One which is still on the Statute Book of Britain today, says, No free man shall be imprisoned, exiled, deprived of property, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land.
2: And that's a real beauty, and about as close to a definition of the rule of law as you're gonna get. But it wasn't law for all, or even for most. Now the catch there is free, no
1: free man, and that meant that the unfree peasants who form the great bulk of the population are not protected by the Charter from Um, any of those things, or the most important thing they're not protected from is being deprived arbitrarily of their land. And that meant that their lords could simply um, chuck them off the land to discipline them. Uh, You know, if if you're in any way difficult or a bullshit, the lord can simply remove you from your land, deprive you of your, your living, and you have no legal recourse. Magna Carta does not protect you
2: against that at all. It isn't talked about much, but the Magna Carta ain't perfect. It was actually completely thrown out of the window only a few years after it came to be. But it laid a stake. A stake in the ground that this rule of law thing should be a thing. That it must be a thing. A stake that could and would be expanded. Over the centuries, to every citizen, to every race in Britain, in America, and now in the 123 democracies of the world, 64% of the countries on Earth. There's clearly more way to go. There's more to fight for. And even in democratic countries like ours, as we'll cover in this series, the rule of law is often violated and must be perennially fought for. Something that the British barons understood.
1: Then, at the end, the most stunning and revolutionary feature was that 25 barons were appointed, chosen by the barons themselves, in order to enforce the charter, and indeed to put right anything else the king does wrong. So a permanent executive is now set up to monitor Royal government, and if you think the charter is being broken, you can appeal to the Twenty-five, and then the Twenty-five are actually empowered in the charter itself to actually force the king to keep the charter and to put right any breaches in it by seizing his lands, his castles, in effect by making war on the king. Resistance is made lawful.
0: And there you have it. What you didn't know, some of the things I didn't know, and I went to a great American law school, the University of Virginia. And we're going to learn so much more about the rule of law in this twice-monthly series, entitled as such. And if you want to find Rule of Law, go to iTunes and search for Rule of Law. And subscribe to our American network while you're at it. We love to talk about history because it's relevant in our lives today. From the Magna Carta comes the Constitution. From the Constitution comes all of our God-given rights. This is Lee Habib. The story of Magna Carta here on Our American Stories.